Welcome to season two of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, mum, burnout survivor, and behavior change scientist. I interview international burnout experts, HR and DEI leaders, and lifestyle coaches to find out how we can create individual, organizational, and cultural change to prevent burnout. When mums thrive, the world benefits. This week, I'm learning about embracing transition with women's career expert, Jess Gallagher. I wanted to speak with Jess because of the stories she has been collecting for her project, Reclaim Your Career, from women who experienced a career pivot. Jess's own career pivot came through motherhood, and she provides a lot of great advice about how to plan and create a mind shift that moves you forward. Having experienced my own career transition due to burnout, I would have benefited from the stories Jess collected to realize that I was not alone and that many mothers experience meaningful career pivots. This week's Behavior Change Guide, based on the episode and Jess's advice, focuses on learning to self-promote. You can find the guide and Jess's key takeaways on the episode website drjacquelinecurr.com slash podcast. And next week, I will be doing a mini episode on how to set up a plan for learning to self-promote as recommended by Jess. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. My name is Jess Gallica. I am mom to one daughter, Avery, who is one year old. And I split my time between my role as a strategy director at Mendix, a part of Siemens, and also researching, writing, and helping female career changers. Great. Thanks so much for that. So if you could start by describing your journey, just briefly, to where you are now in your career. So I've worked for over a decade in the traditional business world, and I really stumbled into business. In my first jobs out of college, I started working for startups. I never imagined myself being a business person, but I landed there unexpectedly, and I discovered that I really loved the energy of building a business. And so that set me on my path in the business world. And I went back to get my MBA at MIT Sloan, and then that launched me into more of the corporate traditional career path within the business world. So I did some time at Apple, worked as a management consultant at Bain and Company, and now continue to work for Siemens. But about a year and a half ago, after leaving consulting and uh, ruminating a bit on my future path, I realized that I was over a decade into my career and that all along the way, my roles and my responsibilities, my career really hadn't felt quite right. I had this gnawing sense that there was something more out there for me or something different out there for me. And I developed a hypothesis that I realized I might need to make a big change in my career and that maybe I was in the completely wrong arena when it came to the work that I was doing. So I started to talk to a few women in my network who had made big career changes. They were career pivoters, leaving corporate America to start their own company or somehow finding a way of going from yoga instructor to CEO, really big fundamental changes in the work that they were doing. And 
I started out these conversations thinking that it was really about me and my career. And I'd learn a few pragmatic tips from women on what to do next. But pretty quickly, the floodgates opened and I was inundated with women to speak to who had these similar experiences. And I also realized that the conversations became really big. So it wasn't just tactical job searching advice. It was these big questions about how to find a purposeful career, how to balance work and family, really how to live a a life well-lived. And so I realized that there was something really big there. And that was the start of what I consider to be my biggest career pivot, which was moving away from traditional corporate experience and into this world of researching and writing about women and career. And so this year I launched my project, Reclaim Your Career, which shares the stories of women who have gone through major career changes and pivots really in the middle of their career and typically successful careers. And that's how I'm spending my time now, Um, splitting half of my time in my traditional day job, you could call it, and then half of my time dedicated to sharing these stories of women and helping other career pivoters and changers just like me. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I I think it's really great for listeners to hear these examples. I have quite a few from my guests where they at first are having time where they're still in their job and they're also pursuing a new goal, either to become a coach or um, something else like that, or, or, or to pursue more writing. And so I love it. I love when my guests have those types of stories that show that you can do both and you can pivot from within as well. And and then sometimes that pivot journey takes a while. Maybe it's five years before you can really go into your business full time. But I think it's really comforting for women to hear that they can do it in that way and have still some of the safety of their job while they're also pursuing something and that it brings something to both sides. You're bringing something back to your company, I can imagine, in this process too. Completely. And there's lots of ways and lots of paces and timelines to make a big career change or pivot. And I think there's sometimes this romantic notion that someone who makes a big career pivot wakes up one day, throws the comforter off the bed and says, I'm quitting my job and I'm going to go become a writer or I'm going to go open a company. The reality is that's just not how it works. With most of the women who I interviewed, their pivot is really well planned out. It's usually executed over a long period of time, and it's done very strategically and intentionally rather than just impulsively, right? Like we sometimes have that Hollywood vision of. So I think that's the first thing for women to understand is that you can take this kind of a pivot and change at a pace that's comfortable for you. And One of the women who I interviewed recently gave me a a new way of looking at it as well, which is that running the parallel paths of starting a side gig or a side hustle or a passion project not only gives you the benefit of launching that passion project or that side gig, but it also can really change the relationship that you have with your primary role or primary work and job. And so what I mean by that is that research shows, this woman shared with me that actually just launching this passion project makes women feel more fulfilled and more satisfied in their traditional day job. 
so there is this way, like you mentioned, that they can exist and complement each other, working in a traditional sense and also pursuing something a little bit more entrepreneurial. And I think that's an important lesson for women to know that it doesn't have to be an all or nothing. Sometimes the best way to do it is to find a way for both paths to coexist. That's great. That is such fantastic advice. So tell me a little bit about how your experience of motherhood might have changed how you approached your career. Becoming a, a mom had a massive impact on my mindset towards my career. And I think my willingness to take risks as well. So it was right around the time that I became pregnant in early 2020 that I finally admitted to myself that when it came to career, I might be in the wrong place. I finally woke up and looked in the mirror and said, I don't think this is it, right? But ultimately, being pregnant and then obviously welcoming my daughter into the world, that really was a driver for me to take action and to do something about that admission to myself and that recognition that I think I need to make a change. And I think the impetus for me to make a change or the impact that being a mom had comes from this unique thing, which is that as soon as my daughter was a reality in our lives, as soon really as I was pregnant, I had this very strange clarity around what I wanted for her. I was really focused and really obsessed with this wish and desire for her. And that wish was that I wanted her to be really comfortable in her own skin And I wanted her to be authentically who she is, whoever that is. And I think the, the power and the conviction that I had around that desire was contrasted with looking at myself in the mirror and realizing that when it came to my career, I really was not being authentic and I was not really comfortable in my own skin and pursuing what I wanted to. My career had been built up based on a lot of listening to the voices around me, telling me what was a good career move or a smart role to take. But the one voice that I didn't seem to be listening to was my own. And all of a sudden in becoming a mom, I I really saw this opportunity to model for my daughter what I hoped for her. So I very firmly credit my daughter and the experience of becoming a mom as a major driver of my career shift. And what gave me the clarity and the courage to finally just listen to myself and move in the direction that I knew was right for me. I just love that. And I think it's so important that we are role models for our daughters. I know Glennon Doyle says that in her book, you don't want to role model being a martyr for your daughter. You want to role model being an interested woman with boundaries and limits and your own interests and fulfillment. So yeah, I I definitely agree. That's so important. And another part about motherhood that I think people don't share is it can be this moment of self-actualization and that it can be quite hard sometimes to face who we are. And I don't think I expected that in motherhood. I I expected that everything was going to so much shift onto my children that I would, you know, not be looking at myself anymore. But actually, it was the moment in time where I started to reflect on myself more than I ever had in life. And I wish I had a little bit of a heads up about that. Yeah, I can really relate to that. And I think the way that I think about it is that becoming a parent, and in particular, becoming a mother, 
it is such a massive identity shift. And I think that the little analogy that I use is a little pie chart, right? If you think of your life as a pie chart, before you're a parent, there's different pieces of the pie, your friends, your family, social life, fitness, whatever is important to you. And no matter your circumstances, no matter how career oriented you are, no matter what, when you become a parent, that role as a parent is going to take up a really big piece of the pie. And so to think that the other pieces, and of course, career and work being one of them, won't be impacted in a fundamental way is just illogical. You've got a piece of the pie coming in that maybe takes up half of it. And so everything else has to shift and find a new way to coexist and fit in place. And so I I think that was the part of it for me as well, is just taking on this new identity of being a mother. And there's the logistical, how do I balance the rest of my life? But there's also that experience of becoming a mother can impact in particular your career identity too. And for me, it did it in two ways. The first is that it took a little bit of the pressure off of my career identity. My career identity before becoming a mom was such a big part of my pie. And it inevitably shrunk when I became a parent because just as I described, everything had to shrink a little. That wasn't associated with being a parent. And in a weird way, that took the pressure off of saying, even if my career isn't perfect, or even if my career isn't accelerating as fast as I hoped, or even if my career isn't reaching these really high levels of achievement. I still have these other parts of my identity that I can be proud of and rely on and make part of a fulfilled life. So that was really fundamental for me. And another thing is that I really loved being a mom. And so when you take on a new identity that you genuinely love and are getting energy from and see purpose in, you start to look at your other identities in a new light. And I think with my career, I thought, wow, I really struck something that feels so aligned with what matters and what's important to me. And I felt optimistic or I I raised my expectations, I think, for what I wanted out of my career. I wanted to have that same level of energy and commitment and conviction to the work that I was doing, just like I was experiencing in this new role of mom and all the work that I was doing as a parent. That's such a great perspective. And I'm I'm really glad you you shared that because I, I really want listeners to be able to hear that message too. So I got a question from a listener that I'm going to ask you, and you can either respond to it based on your own experience or the experience of the women that you've been interviewing and working with. And this was because she had not yet heard this perspective from the podcast so far. So her question is, I used to be so ambitious but now I want to spend more time with my daughter. I did not expect that. How can we prepare mums better? My job doesn't have a part-time option. How do I align my roles? I love this question from your listener because I think almost every mom and every parent feels this in some way when they become a parent. So it's so relevant and would resonate certainly with all of the women who I've interviewed and studied as part of my research. I think the first thing that I would say is this message that I answered in the previous question, which is for every parent accepting and acknowledging, we probably need to raise the visibility of this reality that your relationship with work will change when you become a parent. 
full stop. And I think that's particularly true for women, whether because of physical impacts of bringing a child into the world or the cultural weight and expectations that we put on mothers relative to fathers. So I think overall, what I want to say to your listener is, let's normalize the fact that you're feeling these changes. Everyone does. And with that, I would say, give yourself some grace. I hear a little bit of self-criticism in your reader's question, right? She's saying, I used to be ambitious. And I think under that is this fear of I'm not ambitious anymore. Is that a bad thing? Am I worthy of a great career? There's a little bit of that criticism underlying her statement. And I think I would really urge her to be kind to herself and embrace this part of the journey that she's on of being a parent and embrace the feelings that you're feeling. You are feeling those things for a reason. So it can be uncomfortable, but try to sit in that space of where you are and and give it some time and give yourself some grace as you're going through it. But then, of course, saying, I got to do something. I need to make a move or make something different. And I think in terms of how to make some action here, get more detailed in defining what success looks like. She mentions that she wants more time with her daughter. She needs to define what that means. Does she want to be the full-time caregiver for her daughter? Is she looking to have uninterrupted mornings or uninterrupted evenings with her daughter? Really different scenarios of what success will look based on what she's feeling. And then I always encourage women. I think women tend to think that there's only two paths and this listener has done the same. I have to work full-time in my job. That's path one. Or path two implied is I would just have to leave completely. And I always think that there is a third way. So I always encourage women to really expand what you think is possible in terms of the options, because often there is a third way that you can find. And if you really can't find that third way within your employment arrangement, what else you can change besides work to give her that time? So Maybe there's an option to go remote more frequently with her work to get quick breaks with her daughter while her daughter's with a caretaker. Or if your listener is spending time cooking meals for her family or for her daughter, can she ask a friend to do that? Can she hire someone to do that? So she's not wasting this non-work time when she could be with her daughter. So that's my general reactions, general advice. There's a lot in there. So I'll pause and, and see what you think and maybe what you would add or want to dig into more. I think that's excellent advice. I agree that if we have had this identity, and I think I grew up with that being like, I always just wanted a career. I just wanted to be a successful working woman. That was so important to me. So then when you have this shift in identity, it it can be confusing. And I think what you said is, and I feel bad to say this, but I didn't want to spend more time with my kids. I wanted to get back to work and get on with it. And, And that did then give me a lot of guilt in some ways, because I think, especially in the early days, those early parts of mothering were not the sort of part of mothering that I wanted, that I was most excited about. I was excited once the kids could move and run about and I could take them to parks and run with them and play with them. I think I have to admit my career has just always wanted to be the first thing I was focused on and then always feeling guilty that it 
was and that really I should be thinking about my kids first. So I definitely still have that kind of conflict within, but I can really empathize with this feeling of you defined yourself as an ambitious woman. And somehow are you letting yourself down by not wanting to be that person anymore? So I agree. There's some judgment there. But I also agree about the third way. That's why I was excited to hear how you were balancing two jobs and other women did that. Other women that I've spoken to talk a lot about job crafting. I think all your ideas about outside of work time, how can you make the time you do have with your kids the most quality of time? Because I don't necessarily know that it's more time. I think it is partly quality of time. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think responding to your first point, I think it's fantastic that you had clarity around your interest in maintaining a career. And I think it can be fantastic if women get clarity that they want to spend less time in their career after becoming parents. I think the challenge for women is that there's such high expectations on this role of motherhood. And then there's also can be such high expectations on the role of a career professional. And that's why I use the word grace, because there's so many ways to do work and there's so many ways to do motherhood. And I think of someone like yourself, who's been very career motivated. And I think there's fantastic lessons and learnings and value that you're adding to your children by having that be a priority for you. I grew up with a working mom and was surrounded by a lot of friends whose moms were full-time caregivers and stayed home. And I really have a lot of pride in the career that my mom had. And I think it instilled amazing values in me of work ethic and feeling like women can choose the path that's right for them. So that was something fantastic that my mom brought to bear, even though she was dedicating a lot of time to work. And you can find the same little example for a a parent who's a full-time caregiver, right? Of the unique value that they provide in that role. So there's no perfect way to do it. And I think that one of the core messages around my project, Reclaim Your Career, is two things. One is normalizing these changes in your career. It's never going to be a straight line. There'll be pivots. There might be pauses. There might be steps down or steps back. That's just the way of careers today. So I think normalizing that and taking a little bit of pressure off of parents or moms who maybe are in a moment of pause or a moment of a dip in their career. And the second thing I think is that no one should be defining your career success or your success as a parent, except for you. Only you can define really what success looks like. So trying to live up to someone else's ideal or what culture tells you, right? you feeling guilty about going back to work when you had young kids. It's so easy to fall into that trap, but at the end of the day, none of it matters except for you and your definition of what the right way to do it looks like. Totally. So let's transition a little bit into the stories you have been collecting. I just love that you're collecting stories. I've really come across over time to appreciate how powerful stories are and obviously there's a history of the power of stories but certainly even in my research work when we were trying to convince a policymaker of something we realized that the data wasn't enough we had to have a story and I always loved with the the groups that I worked with I was 
always try and empower the people I worked with to go tell their story. Because I always knew standing in a room as the researcher, I did not have as much power as the story that they could tell about their own lives. I'm, I'm such a fan of stories. Tell us a little bit more about the stories you're collecting and, and what are the common features of those stories? And then contrasting that with what does stand out to you as perhaps unique experiences for some groups, if there is a pattern like that? Yeah, my interest in structuring all of the research and writing around stories falls in line with what you described, which is that I think stories are the most effective and impactful. And I think when it comes to career advice in particular, women are often given a lot of checklists or a lot of five-step frameworks or four-phase tips to succeed in their career. I just hate checklists. <laughs> That's why I think I find blogging so hard because it ends up just being this kind of list, a checklist of something that breaks it all down to the simplest level. And it's, it's not that simple. There's so much more context to these things. So I love that you're more in the long form storytelling as well. Yes. I felt like from my own lived experience and from the conversations that I was having women with women, the last thing that women needed was another checklist or more data or more advice around how to thrive in their careers. Instead, I felt like they needed these stories where they could see themselves, acknowledge what they were feeling and get the courage and inspiration to do something about it and make the change. I always say that I think women already have the answers within themselves to the biggest career questions that they have. And I found that stories are the most effective in allowing women to unlock those answers that are inside of them. So both you and I are big fans of stories, but as it relates specifically to the stories that I am telling, I've studied or interviewed about 150 female career pivoters. And the women with whom I've done in-depth interviews, they tend to be women in business. They tend to be mid or established career, and they've made some large pivot or big change. And really, everyone's story is truly unique. And that might sound cliche, but it, it really is. There is no one-size-fits-all model. There is no uniform checklist for how to pivot right or how to find an authentic, fulfilling career. But what I did see is that there are very common emotions and challenges that all women go through. So it feels like women consistently go through the same kind of set of emotions while they're pivoting. So I'll share a few of those emotions and we can dig into any that are interesting. But the first emotion that most women feel with a pivot is something holding them back. There's a fear, they don't feel ready. They're worried about what other people will think, or they feel guilty about wanting to give up their current role. And yet there's this voice inside their head still urging them or compelling them to move forward and to think about a change and to move toward it. So there's this conflict between something holding me back, and yet I still want to go in this direction. And I think that the most powerful and impactful moment for women comes when they're able to shift their mindset from thinking about, okay, they're thinking this will be embarrassing, this will impact my family negatively, how will I recover, all of this negativity. The, the most impactful mind shift is when they move from what if this wildly fails to asking themselves, what if this wildly succeeds? 
And I think all successful career pivoters and changers have that shift at some point that compels them to move forward. Now, the next thing that most career changers have in common is that they're often aligning their future career path with a genuine interest, a genuine purpose or cause that is meaningful for them. You might use the word passion, though that's actually not my favorite word. Oftentimes we think about that as something fluffy and a nice to have, oh, what a privilege that you get to follow your passion. But it's actually really strategic because it means that women can show up as their best selves performing at their highest level. And it also means that women are able to sustain that career. They're able to run the marathon because they're not suffering or faking it till they make it throughout those decades of a career. And then the last thing I'll say that most women share is that there's a lot of preparation that goes into a career change. I mentioned this earlier. It's not a wake up one day and do it process. It's really methodical. It's really long-term. It's really intentional. And yet, despite all of that preparation, all women agree, you have to leap before you're fully ready. There will never be a time when you feel that you're fully ready. So all of the women I spoke to also share that emotion of the fear of making the leap and yet the courage to actually do it. And I'm happy to say one of the last questions that I always ask in my interviews is a retrospective. Hey, is there anything that you would do differently? Do you have any regrets? And the only response I ever get is no regrets or I wish that I had made the jump sooner. And so I think what's exciting is that women after making these changes are seeing positive results and having the conviction that this was absolutely the right direction for them to move their career. That's great. And I really like your description of the marathon, because I think that's where it relates back to the topic of this podcast as well is burnout. And that if you don't have that approach to it as this is a long-term effort that I need to be able to enjoy and be relevant to me, then it is going to be much harder. And in all levels with burnout in terms of, like you said, the expectations of what is a working mother and putting all those expectations on yourself. So I think it's you know, really important to recognize those and let go of them. But I also do think it is about finding a career that does fulfill you so that it can be this marathon instead of sprint burnout or whatever. Yeah, I completely agree. And burnout is a common topic that I heard in my interviews with women and continue to hear, especially given the timeline of I started doing these interviews at the outset of the global pandemic. And so now all the more reason that women are facing burnout of, of dealing with this new world that we're in. And I think I love that you focus on burnout because I think sometimes we see it as this very simple thing, right? Oh, you're working too much. But I think there are different forms of burnout and it's much more complex. So sure, there are some women who are burnt out because they're simply working too many hours. Maybe that's your most traditional definition of burnout. But then there are women who are burnt out because they operate in a culture or an environment that's very traditionally male and masculine and really not built for them. And so they're having to show up to work in a performative way to fit in with the culture. And they're burnout from doing that. They're saying, gosh, I'm exhausted from paying this tax of 
having to show up as someone that's not really myself because in order to fit in with my work environment. And then there's women who are burnt out of not being engaged with their job, not feeling any genuine interest in the work that they're doing or getting that kind of joy out of it. So I love that you focus on burnout because I think it's such a common element of women navigating their careers. And I think it's complex. There's lots of forms of burnout that have a really big impact. And Christine Masler tries to define the causes of burnout, particularly in the workplace. One of them is that values conflict. And I think that's what you're describing. There's also the relationship conflict. So if you're having to perform in a certain way that in your work relationships, that is also a struggle. But it is those values. It's knowing what you want and that it doesn't match with what your company currently might be focusing on or wanting. So as a mom, it's quite hard to get to that place of knowing what you want, especially again, I think this is really related to burnout where you have spent so much time focusing on other people's needs and you've forgotten, you've no idea what you want. And actually one of the most helpful books for me, it was a parenting book. It was the book you wish your parents had read, which of course really appealed to me in the title. And basically it was saying, teach your kids to be able to express their emotions so that they know what they want. And it was like, oh my goodness, I didn't know that. I didn't know that all this me suppressing my emotions was denying my ability to know what I wanted. So that to me was like such a revelation, you know, when something's off, but then how do you know what is on that you want? How did the women describe that process or even you yourself? Yeah, I love the book that you just described or the message of the book, right? Or your experience with it of suppressing these things that you knew you wanted or the emotions that you had, because I think that is such a commonly lived experience for women. And it goes back to one thing I said before, which is that I really believe that women have all of the answers inside of themselves for their biggest career questions. And one of the big career questions is, what do I want to do? And I think that the hard part and the work and the effort in answering that question actually is not really that you don't know the answer. It's that you do know the answer, but I think it's been buried and buried with all of these other priorities or the suppression that you described of not listening to that inner voice, not listening to those emotions that you've had inside of you. And so that really is, I think, the work that women need to do to unlock the answer of what do I want to do and where do I want to focus? So that's the journey that I hear most women talk about. And that's easier or harder for different women. And I think that there's different tactics and tools that can be helpful to get there. For some women, it's just it takes a long time. You keep hearing that voice. You keep hearing that voice. And at some point you feel like, okay, enough is enough. Why do I keep hearing this voice that I'm trying to quiet? For other women, they have some external event that shakes them and wakes them up, whether that's something positive, like becoming a parent, or I think about something negative, a death or the loss of someone close to you. I think often about Michelle Obama's memoir and talking about navigating her career journey. And she made one of her biggest pivots shortly after she lost two important people in her life. And you wake up to this reality that, hey, there's an expiration here. And if I'm going to do this, 
I don't have all of the time in the world. And I also think that women rely on different people in their life to help them peel back the onion and get to those answers that they have, whether that's a professional career coach or that's a supportive family member, spouse, partner. So it's a journey. It's unique for every woman. But I think the most important thing to realize is that if you are a listener thinking, I just don't know what I want to do. I know this isn't it, but I just don't know what I want to do. I would challenge you, confidently challenge you to say, I think you know more about what you want to do than you're giving yourself credit for. And you just need to have the courage and take the time and do the work to unearth that answer that is already inside of you. I love that. So how are you helping women in companies through your consulting at a kind of corporate level or even in your one-to-one coaching? What is the unique approach that you're bringing to this? Yeah, so I think it's a different approach for one-on-one coaching with women and then ways to work with employers. So when it comes to one-on-one coaching, I love working with women because I've lived this experience as a career changer. I'm in some ways along for the journey. And I, of course, have unique experience researching and interviewing and writing about women. And at this point, having studied the pivots of so many women, you do start to see patterns and you understand how to apply lessons learned from another woman's story who is so different and yet has these very common threads that can be applied. And like I said before, though, there are these common threads. I'd like to take a no framework, no checklist approach. As we talked about, women know how to check the boxes. I don't feel in working with women that I'm here to give you a five-step program. I think you've got the answers. I'm just here to help you unlock what you already know inside of you. So, so that's my approach. And I've worked with coaches in my career. And I think that it can be incredibly powerful, incredibly transformative, whether you're trying to supercharge your career and get to the next level, or whether you're just taking a collective breath and saying, hey, I got to stop. I need to regroup. I need to figure out how to move forward. So, you know, that's the approach to one-on-one coaching with women. And I love it. I love those connections. I love sharing women's stories as part of the collection as well. And then I think there's a whole lot of opportunity for this research and work to impact companies. Companies are becoming more aware of the work that they need to do to make their organization a great place for women to work and to retain women in their organizations. And so increasingly we're seeing a movement towards companies that are investing and working with experts for how do I make this a great place to work, whether that's consulting companies that can come in and support back to work programs after parental leave, whether that's bringing in coaches to work with women or really working with HR talent development teams to understand career pathing and how to make a long-term career at the organization, compelling and interesting and competitive for women. So I think there's lots of work to be done on both dynamics, both at the employer level, trying to get to that more systemic change, but then of course, helping at the individual level for women who are trying to figure it out and sometimes need experienced but neutral third-party person to help them reflect and organize their thinking. I love that you're approaching it with both prongs, to be honest, because again, we can motivate women to try craft a career within a, a workspace, but the workspace also has to be supportive of that approach. So I think it's really important. Completely. Yeah. The way that I see it is that the burden should be on companies to solve these problems. And yet women need to really develop coping 
mechanisms and strategies for how to thrive within the systems that are not perfect today. And I really appreciate what you're saying about coaching. And I think it's so important for women to hear this, that when you're feeling in that place where you're stuck, you can get a coach through work as well. It doesn't have to be a personal investment. Although even authors like Minda Hart suggest that you pay a certain amount for your professional attire, also pay a certain amount for your professional development and hire a coach. So I I was really glad to hear that message coming from someone like her as well. But what do you wish companies did more often for women? I think there's a lot of change that companies can make to be a better environment for women and in particular women of color to work for. And really all diverse communities, right? Whether that's by gender or race or sexual orientation or ability, there's a lot of work to be done. I think in particular, when it comes to women and women of color, the first, I would say, sounds so simple, but I think that companies need to listen to the women in their organization and take their lived experiences as true lived experiences. So I think oftentimes we see a little bit of this kind of gaslighting of you hear stories internally from women and you think, oh, that's not the intention of the team, or we haven't heard that from other women. And I think that's the first thing is you've got to create a culture where you are listening, believing in and trusting the women who are part of your company. I think the second thing is that any meaningful effort to improve the experience for women needs to be invested in as a strategic imperative, not as the right thing to do or a corporate social responsibility effort. I think companies that are serious about this are making this truly a API. It's a key metric of performance for their organization, right? So right alongside new product launch or something. So companies need to be investing strategically, need to have upper-level management, C-level CEO buy-in for initiatives, and you need to have investment, both from that leadership perspective, but I also mean cents and dollars investment to work on these issues. And then the third thing I would say is that companies need to be guided by the data, and they need to take immediate and direct action. So I, I read a new research study out of the Yale School of Management recently that was speaking about how women are negatively impacted by bias when it comes to managers evaluating their leadership potential. So often in companies, a typical way to evaluate people is, okay, there's your performance and then there's your potential. So performance, right? Clearly measured everything you've done historically and then potential as well. What do we think about your growth at the company? And what the data shows is that women are outperforming their male peers when it comes to performance. So they're actually doing better at the work, but then they're underperforming men when it comes to potential. So that in and of itself is a really interesting research study, but the implication for companies needs to be, okay, I'm going to know enough to know that this data exists out there and understand the sort of reality of the world that, ooh, this could be happening within my organization, but then I'm going to take action on it. So for example, if you're an organization who your data maps up with this study showing that, wow, we notice a bias in that women are actually doing better at the job, but we're measuring their potential as worse, that's a problem. 
And then you have to do something about it, right? This is common sense stuff, but we don't see this happening in a lot of organizations. So you've got to find a way to change that. And it might be something like, okay, we're going to lower the, the importance of potential in our management promotions, right? We're going to focus more on the performance data rather than the potential data, because we believe that the potential data is biased. And we're doing this because we think it's one of the most powerful ways to solve this broken rung problem of women just aren't advancing up to the next leadership role. So these are complex issues and complex challenges. And yet at the core, the work that companies need to do is so easy, or I should say so, so simple. You need to listen. You need to genuinely care about this problem. And then you need to take action to correct it. And I think there's there's so much in what you've said here from many angles. I was also reading that paper as well. It's really fascinating is I think some of the adjectives and the criteria that they used for potential were very male-dominated words. How ambitious, competitive, the framework for that potential was extremely male-focused rather than necessarily female-focused in terms of collaborative, looking out for the team mental health, et cetera. If you had a criteria in there is do you see that this person would look after the mental health of our team? That would be potential that women would have (laughs) that probably isn't being reflected. So I think that's part of the the issue there as well. And that, that goes across so many performance metrics. I love that actually when women are judged by whether they're actually doing the job, that is when we thrive and show that we can do it because that is based on more objective results versus do we have the characteristics that people see as typical leaders? And and those are always being defined as, as male characteristics. So that has to change, I think, as well. But I'm just also fascinated because I agree we have to have the data. But I know Amy Hennison has shared that recently, that she was trying to encourage companies to pledge to look after caregivers. And the start of that process is to get the, the data to know, okay, how many people in my company are caregivers and what are their needs? And that companies were afraid to sign that pledge because they were afraid to find out what they were going to find out and afraid to then be held accountable to doing something about it. And I think it's really devastating that we're still in that place. And I don't know how we shift that. I think part of it is, this is a huge problem. (laughs) So if companies are going to take it on, yeah, it's going to be company changing. It is going to be life changing. I know it's a a really tough question to ask because I think it's the reason it exists is because it is a tough question and we don't necessarily yet have the answers. But do you have any thoughts about that? How we can encourage companies not to be afraid of this enormous elephant in the room? It's, It's a really good question. And I think my hope for the future is that companies are going to need to address making working environments better for parents and in particular mothers, because I think frankly, parents and mothers are at their breaking point. And so I think it's a sad reality, the extent of burnout right now, the extent of feeling completely overwhelmed by everything that working parents are trying to balance in a post-pandemic world. And yet my hope is that there, if there is one 
silver lining of that reality, it's that we're having to really see in a visible way and an acute way how broken the system is, right? Parents and women are paying the price for that right now of getting driven out of the workforce, making really difficult decisions, the great resignation. But my hope is that we're almost breaking the system. And so I think companies that are saying, oh, they just want to bury their head in the sand and not pay attention to it. You're not going to be a competitive organization for the workforce to work in moving forward. And so I think really it is that retention of employees and in particular retention of parents who bring to bear great experiences as parents in terms of executive functioning and time management and leadership and all of these things that people learn as they shift into a parent role. So my hope is that companies are going to be forced to be competitive when it comes to being a great place for parents to work because parents are reaching their breaking point and having to get creative and make very difficult decisions oftentimes, which means they're leaving an organization to seek out a better way for them to make it all come together, whether that's doing something entrepreneurial and completely leaving or finding a company that's more progressive and more committed to being a good place and feasible place for parents to work. And I was really glad about that in your stories that some of the women you featured did stay in corporate jobs. And I really understand why becoming an entrepreneur is attractive. At the same time, we do need women leaders in corporate America. So how do you feel the women prepared themselves for those corporate leadership jobs? Or what was it? Was it that the companies were so attractive? That's why they were able to transition into those roles. What were the things you saw in that situation that you feel like gives us some hope about having more women leaders in large companies? Yeah, I think there will always be women who are working in traditional corporate environments. And that's good. That's what we want. And I think pursuing entrepreneurship or solopreneurship, starting your own company, that's never going to be for everyone. It's not always going to be an option. It's not always going to be what's interesting. It's not always going to be a level of risk um, reward that someone wants. There's a lot of benefits that a traditional corporate structure brings in terms of stability and a steady salary, exposure to colleagues who you're working with, and oftentimes a big scale of a corporate entity. So I think that both paths can be very compelling for women. And so it's certainly not that the only way that you can thrive as a woman in your career is to go it on your own. I definitely believe that there are successful paths in both environments. And I think a lot of the a lot of the things to consider across both those paths, whether you're an entrepreneur or solopreneur versus a you know, traditional corporate role, the things to consider and the things to do to set yourself up for success, particularly if you're making a change or a pivot, they stay very consistent. So even all of the emotions that I mentioned before, right, of, oh, I'm scared to make a change and yet I want to, or... I'm trying to align my work to something that's more interesting to me. And there's a lot of preparation, right? All of those steps and emotions that come through with a pivot. That's all true, whether you're making a change or a pivot or just navigating your career, whether it's in an entrepreneurial venture or within a corporation. And so I don't think there's this massive change in terms of how women need to approach their career planning. Probably the things that change when you stay within a company is I think you need to understand the corporate culture. And I mean that in kind of two ways, the 
first is to understand, okay, does this align with my values? Can I show up as myself? And hopefully try to optimize that in any organization that you're entering. So find a leadership board that inspires you, that's diverse if that matters to you. Find a role or try to pivot within the company to a different department that is more in tune with your strengths and things that give you energy. It's trying to understand that corporate culture and how you can succeed. But then I think the really important thing, and it's what we talked about, is understanding the political structure of your company and what you need to do to be successful and make it to the next rung. Because I think that success begets success and success, not just in a, hey, I get promoted and I make more money. But if you're doing well at your job, you're getting recognized, you're taking on more responsibility, you'll continue on that path of success, but you'll also feel much more fulfilled probably and much more satisfied with the work that you're doing. So I think that women who are in traditional companies need to spend a lot of time focusing on the corporate culture and trying to optimize that as much as possible. And then really spending time dissecting the political structure to understand, okay, what steps do I have to take to get promoted here, to get visibility and be seen here in order to move up through a more structured, sometimes limited pathway towards higher levels of responsibility. That's great. And I I love how you actually also said in some ways that they are similar, the approaches you have to understand what you want and where you're trying to get to. So maybe just to end, could you give women or companies or both just one behavior change that you would really recommend for them to do, start doing today? I love when I can focus on an action plan around a behavior change that one of my guests really recommends. I think for women, maybe I'll give two and one for women who are doing something entrepreneurial and one for women who are staying in a corporate environment. I think for women who are doing something entrepreneurial and pivoting away from corporate America, I really encourage women to do this mindset shift of moving from a place of fear to a place of optimism. We talked about this before. It's a simple shift, but practicing every time you're inclined to ask yourself, what if this wildly fails? Shift that behavior to really force yourself, right? Remind yourself, no, I'm not going to think that way. I'm going to ask myself, what if this wildly succeeds? And I think that has such a big impact on women to open up their horizons and feel like they have a lot of potential and focus on the upside, the positivity, rather than focusing on kind of the negative below the line thinking. So that's my advice for people trying to get out of corporate America. I think for women who are staying in traditional roles, the biggest behavioral change is to advocate for yourself more, master the art of the humble brag, master the art of self-promotion. If you are someone who this is naturally very difficult to do, then force yourself to overdo it, right? Feel like you're overdoing it in your mind, right? You're embarrassingly advocating for yourself and, and hyping yourself up to get more visibility, Because even if it feels uncomfortable for you, you probably will end up in a moderate place that's very similar to what your male peers are doing when it comes to self-advocacy. Yeah, and I think the one behavioral change for companies is when you're investing in initiatives around diversity, equity, inclusion, specifically initiatives around gender diversity, make it a strategic investment 
it needs to be something that's backed with leadership buy-in and with investment dollars to actually enact any real and lasting change. Yeah, totally agree with that. And I've seen that also in other policy arenas where you have a policy that's a mandate and it's an unfunded mandate, nothing happens. You don't have the funding to measure whether it's working or not. So you definitely want things to be legislation with funding. And and so translating that to the business side, yeah, real policies, real programs with money that allows you to assess whether they're working and to make changes when they're not working. Yeah, totally agree. That's so important. But I think one of the things you said about the self-advocacy is really important. And maybe that's what women can also work with their, their coaches. But one of the pieces of data that came out to me that I thought was just really fascinating was a study that looked at implicit bias training. And basically, the authors said, yeah, implicit bias training did not change the behaviors of anybody in the organization, they maybe became more aware of their biases, but they then didn't change any of the behaviors. So this is why implicit bias training is just really the first step. And then you have to actualize this into behaviors. But what the study did find, there was one group who did change their behaviors and it was women of color. And through going through this implicit bias training, they suddenly realized goodness, this is the world I am working in. This is how people think in this world. And and they basically then said, wow, this is really like in my face apparent now. And goodness, I have to advocate for myself more. So I was so surprised that that came out as a finding, but I was like, thank goodness, at least there was one upside to it, which was that there was a group of people who then said, okay, I really have to do something about this for myself. And like we said, that shouldn't be what it is that you have to take it upon yourself. But I think in this time of transition where the systems are what they are, the more that we do take charge of our own destinies in this way and learn to become self-advocates and extreme ones, as you mentioned, I think that's something that we at least own in this moment as we go forward and while also trying to bring others along to make the changes that are needed for everyone, really. Yeah, just one last thought. I love that research that you shared. It's unexpected to, to me as well. But I think one thing that I'll add is for women of color learning, okay, I need to advocate and their response to the data. I think another response in some ways unexpected can also be, I hear this from women and women of color, almost relief in a way of just validation that their lived experiences are actually true and happening. They're not crazy. They're not feeling this way for any other reason than, yes, this is their lived reality, facing bias as a woman or facing even more bias as a woman of color. And so I do see how that data, even though it's discouraging, in a way can be empowering because you understand the existing realities and rules of the game and you can make a strategy to navigate it. It's unfortunate that's the world that some women and many women of color find themselves in, they do need to move forward and find a way to thrive in these communities, women and women of color. So I think that's an element of what you shared as well. And I think that goes back to what you said at the beginning, which is recognize those lived experiences. They are real. So connecting those two things, I think that's where it's missing sometimes is that the training is disconnected from what can you then do? You can realize, yes, this is what these women are facing 
on a daily basis and see it and recognize it. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time and your insight. I just love you have this wealth of knowledge because it's all these stories that you've been collecting and you're like an encyclopedia of women's career knowledge. And I think it's so important. And I, I so much agree that we, we do not want another checklist, but to see ourselves in those stories. And again, I can see how that's so powerful for your coaching is that every time somebody describes something, you can go, oh, yes, I knew someone else who had those similar experiences. That's what we need to hear, that we're not alone in this journey and that there are others forging paths for us. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, I'm glad it's resonating for so many women. And I thank you for having me. This has been a really fun conversation. Thanks so much for listening. You can find additional resources on my website, drjacquelinecurr.com. Please send me feedback and your ideas for episodes or guests and subscribe or follow wherever you listen. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Take control, you're a fighter. Feel the